and this is a continuation of the Biota Podcasts. For more information on the Biota Podcasts, check out biota.org slash podcast. We have two people on the line. I believe the first is Bruce Damer. Hello, Bruce. Hello, Tom. I made it on the call after all. Very good, very good. And we have a second caller. Hello. Hello, this is Rudolph. Oh, Rudolph, good to speak to you. We may actually get Gerald on the on the line as well, but it's great to have you on this evening as well. So only very brief news and notes this week, and then we can start talking about this evening's topic. I was hoping to have Gerald on as well so we could talk about some of the uh, developments of uh, Darwin at Home, which I'm sure, Rudolph, you're interested in talking about as well. But uh, for folks listening in, it looks like we'll actually be resuming the regular Biota Live format I hope to be recording in two Fridays' time. There's still some issues with regards to uh, a few things which may stop two Fridays' time from being the date of recording, but I certainly want to start up the uh, the Biota Live recordings again because I got a lot of community feedback, a lot of community support, um, and my situation may actually be changing in the near future, but I can't talk too much on that. I do plan on having William R. Buckley on uh, probably within two or three Biotalized cycles to talk about artificial life on the atomic level, uh, which was the podcast that was originally slated for when I got back from Australia. In addition, I had the, the wonderful opportunity to meet Robert Rice last night, and we talked about a number of artificial life-related things and a number of other things. Robert was in town for the Independent MMO Game Developers Conference, and we were joined at dinner uh, by Greg Boyd. Now, Greg Boyd is an intellectual property rights lawyer, He's part of the uh, intellectual property rights game development community, uh, which is uh, one of the other groups that I uh, co-chair. And uh, Greg's a fascinating fellow, but um, one of the topics that came up last night was what's going on with the International Game Developers Association. And uh, one of the key members, in fact, the, the previous kind of head of the International Game Developers Association, Jason De La Roca, resigned a couple of weeks ago. He's a very interesting character and a lot of what he did with the IGDA I use as being my model with regards to what we're doing with Biota. Um, but certainly through his resignation and the discussions that came up, a lot of interesting things discussed with Robert Rice and I passed on a, a group of Biota CDs for him to distribute through his travels. Rudolph, for folks listening in, you've obviously participated in previous Biota Lives. You um, contacted me uh, while you know, while Biota Live was down, with regards to recording your own submissions for Biota Live, talking about your own ideas in artificial life and these kind of things, for folks listening in, what would they have heard with your with your submission to Biota Live? I am still planning on uh, starting my own podcast. Um, 
I already have one person who is going to be interviewed. Uh, his name is Stephen Johnston, and he's got a very interesting blog. It's the Software Physics blog, and its website is softwarephysics.blogspot.com. And I tried to print it once. Basically, it's a book. It's a very interesting book of about 400 pages about uh, how he's able to model software as physics. Um, he's a, an older person and he started out as an uh, oil seeker looking for oil in different places and he's became an IT professional after that. First for the same company and now he's a very good programmer, I think. So I think you had a chance to listen to the last discussion that Bruce I and Dick Gordon had. And towards the end, Dick mm -hmm. raised a point with regards to this idea of levels of detail or, or resolutions associated with the EvoGrid simulation, which is fundamentally a, a question in physics simulation as well. The point that I raised, which I'm still hoping to have Dick on a, a future, or maybe even this bio live if he's listening in currently, to discuss the idea that if you create these kind of levels of detail barriers, that what happens is that the artificial life algorithm just finds the you know the fastest possible way between these particular barriers into the next level of detail. In your own reading and thinking with regards to physics simulation, I mean, does this gel with you as well, or can you think of, of possible solutions or examples which contradict that idea? Well, I think we should make the artificial life. Um so smart that they, it would keep seeking boundaries like that and it would uh, also build a library of knowledge so that it doesn't uh, run into its limits very quickly like much of the current artificial life is doing. And Bruce, from that kind of conclusion of when we discussed this a couple of weeks ago, have you thought any more uh, about this problem and, and the way Dick prefaced it with regards to kind of levels of detail and these kind of issues with the EvoGrid? Yeah, it's, it's been confirmed by several people I've talked to that say, yes, there's a different physics operating at different levels, and you have to you have to change to that physics, or or you're hopeless in terms of computation, and you also you can't identify what's going on in the system. Everything will still look like atomic level wigglings rather than anything identified uh, at the higher level. Nature seems to create new physics. But using Larry Yeager's example, and I'm trying to think, I think it was even with Carl Sims' blockies, in terms of boundary conditions, what artificial life is, is very unique in some regards in terms of the way in which it interrogates environments. And my concern would be, you know, coming from an artificial life perspective as opposed to a necessarily a physics simulation perspective, as soon as you start creating these boundary conditions, and they have to be defined in some way, I mean, this is what I was prompting Dick with regards to specifically. Could he give an example of even things like the boundary conditions of surface tension that would move from, um, you know, atomic to, uh, to molecular to, you know, from uh, the scales and the transitions? How would this be defined? And then, obviously, the artificial life algorithm would optimize to making that jump as opposed to questions of novelty, questions of actually jumping through possibly multiple stages of these physics layers. I mean, if you imagine 
uh, in the atomic sense, uh, it would be possible to have kind of wiggly things that through some method um, created kind of pre-Cambrian-like intelligence, whereas larger structures um, that existed uh, didn't have that component, but they were in a different physics simulation um, uh, realm um, to use, you know, not previously defined vernacular. So, I mean, I think that's my concern with regards to these layers, these, these changes in physics simulation, is it makes sense from a, a physics standpoint, but from an artificial life standpoint, particularly when you start talking about kind of pre-artificial life into, you know, early weekly things, you know, irking out kind of pre-Cambrian intelligence through kind of Cambrian intelligence, these kind of algorithms would very quickly test the boundary conditions. Now, there is an argument within artificial life that says that that is really what happens in the natural world as well. I mean, humans have been very good at exploiting the boundary conditions as kind of the pre-Cambrian intelligences were very good at exploiting their boundary conditions. And maybe all we're confirming is that, you know, artificial life like natural life finds boundary conditions. But I think in terms of the kind of initial statement of the Evo grid, you don't want to construct a simulation which necessarily kind of self-verifies the conditions that you put in the simulation, if you understand what I'm saying, Bruce. Yeah. Does that make sense to you? It makes sense. And the, the discussion came at the conference I was just at about biasing. You know, if you're searching for the formation of vesicles in, in an aqueous simulation and, and you decide to throw more computing power when you see vesicles form, you're selecting for vesicles. And vesicles may not be the best emergent form of an artificial origin of life. Uh, they just may be interesting structures, but you're making a decision about that. So it's a, uh, and then you make your, you, you bring in your vesicle physics engine, which is good at simulating membranes and insides and outside the pressure. Uh, and uh, so you're really kind of saying, I'm in the vesicle business. Now, of course, it's, if you go to the Flint lab in Denmark with Steen's group and Martin Hanzig, you know, they're really trying to, they are doing intelligent design in the way that they're, they're cooking the solutions at exactly the right temperature to get exactly what they think they'd like to see forming. So it's extremely, it's extremely tuned and designed. These kind of questions and this kind of discussion really fits into the meta-philosophy of artificial life, or more importantly, the philosophy of artificial life, kind of the metaphysics of artificial life, I should probably say. And this is really where the topic for this evening um, came from. Through writing in Divine Action and Natural Selection, I'm constantly amazed and interested by the kind of feedback that I've received. And I know, Bruce, you've, you've received similar feedback with your chapter. And in my chapter, there was a section associated with how dealing with chaos is almost a good it is as good a meter as any in terms of establishing what life is, that life can survive through chaos. And it was put back to me from one reader in particular that these kind of things that we can learn from writing artificial life simulations may actually be useful in the real world as well, describing um, the term the, the reader used was black swan events. I've gone back to read quite a bit about black swan events in terms of what they specifically relate to, but they are the um, extreme kind of chaotic situations. I think probably the current financial situation is almost a black swan event. Uh, the two other textbook cases are obviously September 11th and also the financial crash of uh, 1989. These seem to be two 
topics that were in about quite heavily in the black swan event literature. And so the, the reader put the question back to me, as an artificial life developer, what additional insights can I give in terms of these kind of events um, from a simulation perspective? And certainly I thought it was a very interesting question. It was one that I thought merited um, discussion about live. I was hoping to have Gerald on this evening because what he's doing currently in terms of moving Darwin at home from being kind of individual creatures wandering around in a very perfect utopian universe to actually quite a, a diversity of environments and also multiple creatures. I believe we may actually have the man himself on the line. Hello, Gerald. Can you hear me? I can hear you. So, we, yeah. we are pretending to be you. <laughs> so now we have you on the line. We're talking about well, that, what, what has happened in the past two months associated with Darwin at home. Perhaps you could fill in the listeners. And Tom okay. and Daryl, I have to leave because I have to pick up Galen. Good talking with you, Bruce. Glad, glad hey. about live is back and, and good to meet you, new guest. I can't remember your name. I'm sorry. Rudolph. Rudolph, yes. Sorry. Um, see you again on subsequent calls. Thank you, guys. Good talking with you, Bruce. Thank you. Okay, now do I get to pretend to be myself? You can pretend to be yourself now. Okay, okay. Uh, let me see. Well, I've been developing like crazy, and I also gave a presentation recently to the to the Java group in in Holland here, and um, there were 20 people, and I gave them a really uh, sort of comprehensive two-part. Uh, exploration of of uh, the blind watchmaker and how it uh, how it works with code and uh, and also I gave him a demo of the current uh, version of of Darwin at Home as it's uh, as it's developing into a game and uh, it's indeed a situation I'm trying to set up a, a sort of a, a a mini Second Life sort of scenario where where you log in and you interact with others. On uh, in a in a sort of a shared space, and that shared space is uh, is uh, is shape of a sphere. It's not. Uh, I'm not uh, going to be building, you know, a, a really elaborate environment that's uh, that's very chaotic. Except for the fact that uh, people will encounter each other. I'm not going to have. Uh, I, I I really. I mean, the, the idea of having a complicated planet with uh, hills and valleys and, and uh, you know, all sorts of uh, contours and things like that, I think that might be something for later, but I really want to get something online. And uh, the, the most important thing to me is that people get the experience of, uh, you know, evolving from, from scratch, uh, starting, uh, starting with, a, with a creature and, and uh, meeting other people chatting with them online and uh and experiencing the whole uh, the whole evolution process um there, there have been so many developments in uh, in darwin at home it's hard to summarize them really quickly but uh, the point is it's it's sort of quickly evolving into a, a kind of a game scenario i've got uh you know login mechanisms i've got a database set up i've got uh uh, the the whole scenario. I just yesterday restructured everything um, in order to make it uh, easy to grab as a developer and uh, continue playing around with. And actually, one of the people who I uh, presented the the story to, uh, one of the Java guys, is is uh, has picked up the code and is playing around with it. So uh, 
there, there might be a, a potential for a little collaboration because this guy works with um, evolving uh, music uh, software. So if if I can integrate that into the game, that would be excellent. But in terms of your actual emergent wonder, I mean, I think this is what I've picked up on through your various tweets and, and podcasts and these kind of things. I mean, you you seem to catch yourself realizing that it's actually far more powerful than you originally anticipated with regards to things kind of unrolling and being born and these kind of things. I mean, would you like to talk a little bit about that? Well, it's it's hard to... Uh... The, the, the whole challenge, of course, as, we're, as we all know, is uh, is setting up something that is, uh, you know, that, that that's realistic enough. Yet it does work well enough that people don't, uh, you know, evolution in 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 reality is is too slow. So um, it would it would take forever to see any results if you if you imitated real evolution. So um, what I did with the blind watchmaker is I sort of uh, formalized and uh, um, you know uh, made I made the process that that I've done in Darwin at home earlier I made that completely generic and then once again applied it to uh, to the to the Darwin at home scenario with uh, with elastic intervals and with uh, you know the, the the running creatures and everything so that that has been sort of uh, you know, made generic, and uh, therefore can be applied to any number of uh, in evolution scenarios. And then what's what's happening in the blind watchmakers is extremely uh, straightforward. But at the same time, you can you can actually see the survival of the fittest happening, because um, like what happens is first of all uh, the um, the creatures grow according to their growth behavior, and then uh, when that's completed, when they've used the first amount of energy, they switch over to a movement behavior, and uh, that involves uh, initially, of course, random muscle contractions, and and those are uh, those are also implemented and working in a very different way than than it used to in Darwin at home because it's really now just muscle contractions that are distributed over the body. Instead of having everything following a single clock, these are just uh, individual contractions that are combined together. And uh, I know I'm trying to summarize it really quickly, but what the blind watchmaker is doing, it's, it's literally just interpreting a script, and that script is written binary, in binary language, which is the genome. So, um, you know, there's a script language, and it's ones and zeros, so there's no syntax errors. And uh, you, you build... Oh, no, I think we've lost Gerald. <laughs> I think we've lost Gerald mid-spiel, mid Rudolph. Um, so I hope he'll call back in, and we can probably line it up. But I had a, I had a question for you, um, Rudolph, in particular. I mean, Bruce is talking about there being a kind of sub-conference for Biota at the upcoming... Artificial Life 12 conference, uh, which I believe is being held in Norway, although I could be wrong on that. If such a kind of sub-conference was held, do you think you would uh, you would attend? Oh, I've got Gerald calling back in. I'll, I'll just oh. bring him back in. So, hello, Gerald. I do think so, yes. Yeah, I'm back. You do back. think so? I, I, I'm sorry, Gerald, I've completely derailed it because I had a, a question for Rudolph, but... Hearing, um, why don't we go back to Darwin and I'll ask you the question. So, as you're speaking to 
you know, a few hundred close friends here, and as one fellow already has access to the new source code, would you consider doing a, a biota beta of the new Darwin at Home source, and do you get a sense of the kind of time frame associated with that? Um, it's it's hard to predict because I don't necessarily you know have uh, all my time to work on this. I, I uh, grab the odd day here and there, um, so I'm not sure exactly when it will be ready for for you know for total you know public consumption. But um, I think I should have uh, some sort of demo working you know sometime in the next month or so. That uh, that should be fairly complete. And uh, you know, at least for some people to try out and, uh, and get some feedback and, and uh, sort of ramp up to the first sort of public release, because it, it is something that should be simple enough. Like one thing I've been really paying attention uh, paying attention to is is navigation and and, uh, and making that so simple that you can't really get it wrong. And and that's not easy in an, in a you know in 3D environment. You've you've got to be able to find your way around and in 3D that's not easy to do and a lot of people have trouble navigating in Second Life um, and what I have so far is I have uh, you know limiting of the degrees of freedom everywhere you are as a, a viewer of the virtual world so you're either you're either arriving or you're orbiting or you go down to the surface and then you, you can move around the surface and then you can actually attach to something and follow it along, uh, attach to a creature and follow it along. So there are different like viewing uh, states and every one of these states is, only allows a couple of degrees of freedom so I can actually do everything with the mouse, uh, you know, with the mouse position on the screen. It's really interesting trying to limit things down so that uh, it makes sense to people who don't really want to invest a hell of a lot of time trying to understand something. It's a really challenge to try and make it, you know, really jump out at people, really straightforward. And th like the whole time, you know, evolution is is, uh, is evident and taking place. So uh, I think this might be interesting just purely because it's, uh, you know, a game involving real evolution. So it's, it's a learning experience for the people who play and uh, you just get the feel for it. Certainly. And as you may have heard, Bruce is running a track at Artificial Life 12 uh, next year. So I think this is really the, uh, the, the, the point in the future that you should think about with regards to not even necessarily a, a public demo, but really talking about what the public demo has already shown. If there was, I, I, again, my, my mind's gone blank, but my recollection is it may be in Norway next year. If Bruce was running a, a track at Artificial Life 12, I'm sure he'd be able to put you on the bill some way. What kind of things do you project that you could display at an Artificial Life 12 to to the kind of folk that would attend such a conference? Oh, when is it? Um, sometime next year. Okay, yeah, 2010. So project yourself in a year's time. You've already done the public beta. You've already gotten everyone involved. Things are moving and cooking along and maintaining themselves wonderfully. What is your sense in terms of what you would display then? Well, in a year's time, I, I hope to be able to tell you know anecdotes about how things are progressing and, and what kind of interesting things happened. Um, one of the things I'm going to be doing in the program is uh, is making movies. Uh, every every creature that in in the entire game should be um, you know is is going to be 
snapshot it every once in a while, and the snapshots are going to be collected, and it's going to be possible to make movies out of all these things. I think there's a lot. There will be a lot of sort of media to show, and uh, you know, sort of really accessible, accessible things like you know, YouTube videos and things like that. So, I think it'll be more an, an account of of what all has happened. At least I hope so. But by that time, it should it should have been out long enough that um, the whole project will have you know either uh, caught on a little bit or uh, at least uh, been active for, for some time and the idea is that the users interacting through the environment of the intelligence as opposed to the blind watchmaker code itself isn't it i mean that's still a central idea yeah the thing the thing i'm doing is i'm sort of being lazy i'm saying well you know the i don't want to be bothered at the moment at least with building things like senses and certainly not intelligence so uh, what I'm doing is I'm delegating those things to the user to the to the player and um, focusing on just evolving skills certainly and Rudolph as you listen in do you have any questions for, for Gerald um, yeah it does. I'm just waiting for it to come out as well. I'm, I'm very keen on uh, on seeing it because it's been described so well and it sounds like an, an awesome job that uh, Gerald is doing. So I'm just very keen to, to see it working. And, yeah, and I would like some sensors, know. but how would uh, a user be able to to evolve his own sensors, for instance? Yeah, okay. Um, that's what I was saying. That I, I avoid doing that, so I'm just uh, delegating yeah. that wor- that work to the to the player. In other words, the player decides, or the player looks around, and the player decides mm-hmm. what to do. So uh, those things are already taken care of, and by letting the player do those things, it's also a, sort of a win-win situation because then the player has something to do, you know, and some reason to come back. Uh, so. Um, there's there's a scenario that that plays itself out in the game, which is quite unique and uh, and probably one of the most interesting things about the whole uh, the whole game when it's when it's running later on is is the fact that um, it's a real uh, exploration of the idea of a blind watchmaker. In, in a sense, you know, you're saying there are genes and the genes produce a phenotype, and it's a one-way street. And if the phenotype happens to survive, then those genes will be copied into next generations, and you'll see the same traits returning. So it's really sort of experimenting with that entire notion of a, of a completely blind watchmaker and uh, see what see what turns out. Um, so it's uh, it's going to be possible to uh, to make it a little bit viral as well. So if if somebody um, hasn't logged in for a while and their creature uh, comes into danger then uh, or you know is being uh, is being attacked or someone's going to try and eat it or or mate with it or something like that then I'm able to send an email out with uh, with a picture which is a ray traced image of the current uh, you know scenario around that particular creature so you you get a message from you know call home so the the creature will call its master and say help and then uh, the the whole scenario is that on the server nothing is learned, uh, on the server nothing is evolving. Uh, the server is the place where everything just sort of plays itself out in slow motion, and the client is exploring all the possible 
scenarios for the next second or so. So you're sort of on the client exploring the next second, and on the server, time is just progressing very slowly. So in a way, it's kind of like a strategy game more than a you know a first-person game. On the other hand, it's a 3D thing, so you're moving around and everything. So that since it's a first-person, it's a, in a way it's a it's a strange hybrid of of the two sort of gaming uh, approaches. And uh, yeah, like I said, like the server is the slow motion universe actually happening, and the client is exploring the next second and using evolution to do that. Um, there are going to be also two different kinds of, uh, of progression of, of the genome, and because now I'm going to have a, a fairly large number of different genes in the genome, that means that, and they're discrete, which means that I can sort of mix and match, so it's possible to do crossover. Uh, meanwhile, I've got already um, a little system built that, that replicates what the original Darwin at Home programs did, which was having sort of mutated clones of each other competing privately in a little uh, in a little population. This this doesn't happen in real evolution, but it certainly is a, a useful accelerator in this virtual evolution because it's a way of refining behavior, sort of in a focused way, in a, in an obvious way, so that it happens fast enough that people don't get bored and um, the individual skills that are acquired by doing this evolution, this, this sort of focused mutation-based evolution, um, they are carried along with the creatures. And once you decide to, uh, you know, procreate with another creature, then it's possible because of the discrete genes to sort of pick and choose and create a new gene and see if the survive, see if the uh, the progeny is, you know, viable. So it's going to be much more interesting genetically. It's going to be uh, much more involving and uh, in a way possibly viral and um, and it's also a, a place to meet which is going to be very different as well we could probably uh, you know meet there from time to time and have a chat while we're evolving stuff so a couple of questions I mean this idea of help is very interesting because it can either be a temporal thing or there was some discussion about the creatures actually kind of battling and potential for doing damage and killing and eliminating limbs and these kind of things. Is that still part of the narrative, Gerald? Um, I think I will take that one step at a time in the sense that, uh, that first of all, I'll make it sort of very abstract when, when an attack happens and, and when it's successful. So, you know, when you approach within a certain distance then you're already able to kill the other one or something like that you know something simplified and then uh, later on when if, if that's already proven itself to work then I'll look into making it a little more dramatic and a little more uh, realistic by for example you know you might have the option of, of uh, shooting out a, a death ray that, that uh, you know that, that paralyzes your victim, and then you you can walk. But all these things can be added, and you know it can be made a little more visually dramatic and interesting. In essence, the same thing is happening. So my my first effort will be to just get it online and just get it working, even if some of these uh, in, encounters are sort of uh, you know abstractly uh, implemented instead of you know, dramatically visual. And my second question was that you mentioned the ability to, to have the creatures mating. 
and then you very quickly shifted to the idea of meeting through the uh, environment and watching evolution and these kind of things. I mean, is there a potential for rape in the environment, or will it always be mutually consensual? Or how, how do you envisage actually dealing with these kind of issues? Yeah, well, that's a very interesting question, Tom. <laughs> and it's really a, a question of what you decide to make possible. I mean, it, it could be, you know, all, I get to make the rules, so. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I was thinking of making it consensual, but if you have other suggestions, let me know. Yeah, I think that the whole notion, I mean, really what you're doing is taking the most extreme elements of second life and making them very explicit in some regard. I think all this kind of meta you know, social theory stuff really is probably stuff that we don't necessarily think about when we create these kind of simulations, but are always, you know, raised by con concerned onlookers with their own particular views. But no, this is very fascinating, and I mean, thank you, Gerald, for the opportunity to, to kind of, um, you know, discuss Darwin at home in this length as a kind of, you know, topical project as we're doing with the Evo Grid as well, kind of getting updates and thinking, and certainly passing this out to the broader community in terms of them coming on and talking about their own projects and also giving insights into the kind of, you know, day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month thinking of artificial life developers. So the question for this evening related to what artificial life can teach us about dealing with chaos, and this is both within our own artificial life simulations, and it was posed to me almost as the kind of this philosophy of artificial life, which I see, well, I mean, historically, I mean, it's come from the, the mid-90s with folks such as Margaret O. Bowden and Mike Badeau um, writing about the philosophy of artificial life. But you made an interesting comment with regards to uh, the possibility of pain and these kind of things. And a lot of the early hard artificial life dealt with robots that actually had pain sensors on them. So you could give them kind of pain feedback and what that would teach them as they moved through the environment. So this is all very interesting. I know we've talked about this briefly in the past, Gerald, but as you develop artificial life, do you think of it as something that can create some kind of meta-philosophy that's maybe useful in the real world as well. Do you see that kind of that kind of linking or I mean are you still very much caught up in the fact that you're an abstract artist creating an artistic, you know, an artistic form? Well, in uh, in my presentation to the to the Java group, I actually uh, went so far as to say it was a, a, a different programming paradigm, in, you know, in in a sense in the sense of programming it actually I think you know it's not something that necessarily necessarily uh, can be applied to all sorts of existing real world problems straight away, but um, it it turns the tables in the sense that you know you're you're saying okay uh, let's construct a system that is scripted, but we're not going to write the script. In other words, you know you're you're a, you're allowed, or your 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 job is to create the instructions. So you can define, so you define what can happen, but you can't define what does happen. And in a way, that that really turns the tables, and that's a learning experience to to be forced to come up with the possible instructions, and then just uh, surrender yourself to the fact that the instructions are going to self you know, to write themselves, because uh, the scripts that, uh, first of all, scripts can't have syntax errors because they're binary, and second of all, as time goes on, the ones that 
survive into the future will be better in some way or other, but it really isn't predictable beforehand. So in a way, it's sort of turned the tables on the programmer, which is, uh, which is definitely something worthwhile exploring. Certainly. Well, I mean, if I can play out my own kind of thought experiment associated with this and also give the introduction again, because I'm not sure how much of this you actually heard. But in my chapter, I write about surviving chaos as being a metric for life, that the, the ability for um, you know, pre-Cambrian life forms to kind of irk their way through whatever chaotic environment they were, were in was actually a relatively good test for life. And the question that came back to me from a, a reader of my chapter was, is there anything I can you know, talk about in terms of surviving chaos in the real world, which is highly topical with my current situation, uh, from my experiments in artificial life? And the thought that came to me was with regards to the idea of the intelligent agent in an artificial life simulation, that really what the intelligent agent does, as the pre-Cambrian critter did, was work out as much as of the external world that it can possibly understand through the limited sense data that it's given. And the reader passed me this idea of the black swan event, and I think, as with a number of other topics on BioLive, I think it's probably better that the listeners go to Wikipedia and read what a black swan event is. But the two examples that are typically given are the stock market crash in 1989 and also September 11th as being these, you know, catastrophic and, as particular authors would say, unintelligible events that occurred. And the question back to me as an artificial life developer in terms of what can, you know, developing artificial life teach me about understanding these kind of events, I thought initially was completely beyond the scope of artificial life development. But then I started thinking about the ideas of what an intelligent agent is in a simulation. And certainly with regards to, you know, those events and also the events we see currently with regards to the kind of current financial system, the ability for people in positions of power and these kind of things to deny aspects of their own intelligent agency, uh, to almost deny their own uh, interactions with the environment and the information that they're receiving is something which is very curious. And I also reflected back in my early Noble Ape development that I thought if I was to stand in front of a Noble Ape, if this creature was to exist in front of me, how would it differ from me through being a simulated agent. And the first thing that occurred to me, and I, I write about this a little bit through the original manual, is the idea that the, the noble ape acknowledges all the information that it is receiving in a very explicit way. And we as humans don't do that. We have mythology, we have lies, we have a wide variety of things which remove us from the sense data that is coming in primarily and construct these very elaborate, in some way, plausible deniability walls between us and what is going on in the outside world. So to play through the question as I saw it and the way that I used my kind of artificial life development to interpret it, the only thought that came to me is that there is an element of my own kind of political and intellectual pragmatism that has to apply to the solution in this case, or the, the response. And I think certainly this is something that's gone on through um, particularly my discussions with you, Gerald, and a number of other folk in the community, that we really do, irrespective of what we learn from our simulations, there is always an element of, you know, some other abstract or particular idea that seems to map onto our response associated with them. I mean, do you think, do you think it's possible to construct this kind of philosophy from artificial life simulating without taking a good degree of our own kind of political or ideological baggage along for the description? 
Yeah, well, I, I would say at a, at a meta level, for sure. I think, think of it this way. Uh, uh, first of all, I would say that the, the economic collapse that we're currently in is, is not really a black swan. It was something that if you, uh, if you look at the rules that were being followed and, and the way they were set up, it's, it's, the rules of the game were basically uh, you know, leading to something like this. So it's just a question of time when, when the thing will, uh, will collapse. And I'm sure a lot of people were in the know about that. Uh, so it's not exactly a black swan, completely unexpected but, but thing. But the interesting thing about oh. that is that all the examples given, including September 11th and 1989, are all things that the same, the same kind of description could say. I mean, there are a number of indicators with regards to September 11th leading up to the event. One of the things that, that we can learn on a meta level from uh, from artificial life development for in, in this context is, is I think... Uh, you know the idea of having a bunch of um, players playing according to the defined rules, whatever they may be, and and searching out every nook and cranny in those rules to uh, to be successful themselves. I mean, anybody who has played with evolutionary systems, I remember hearing this from uh, from Adam Aramenko quite a bit. You know the 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 special talent that these systems have is that they uh, they find every corner of what you've defined, and they will uh, they'll completely spiral out of control if they find something that you hadn't anticipated. And uh, you know the, the financial rule systems are also you know just sort of a limited def- definition of what's possible and, and what's not. And uh, the the thing you you can learn from it is that individual agents will uh, will just search and search and search for their own uh, for their own advantage and and any hole in the rule system will be will be used and when you're saying something about uh, surviving chaos I mean the thing that comes to mind for me is just the idea of replication if you've got enough individuals and if if an individual can just uh, you know replicate itself uh, to, to fill the entire environment then then all sorts of chaotic events can happen which you know may decimate large proportions of an existing population of genes but not every single one of them which means that of course the, the remaining ones can replicate again so just the simple fact that you're replicating to fill every hole is the way that uh, you know that surviving chaos can can be described were you able to listen to the last uh, podcast with uh, Bruce and Dick Gordon and myself talking about the Evo grid yeah I did so there's an idea that both Dick and Bruce are talking about currently associating with um, having levels of detail and moving from one kind of physics environment to another physics environment associated with boundary conditions which are going to be defined in some way. I've been prompting both of them to actually give some kind of definition so I can give it a kind of counterexample. But do you think, I mean, certainly I think in some regard Adam Aramenko is agreeing with what I'm saying, that these kind of boundary conditions will be the first things that the the algorithms exploit and really all you're doing in these circumstances where you create these boundary conditions is finding the fastest possible path between the boundary conditions to move to the next level. I mean, is this your thinking as well with regards to the idea of, you know, multi-scale physics as applied to something in the Evo grid? Yeah, when I was listening to that podcast, I was uh, chomping at the bit, wishing I was on call and, and wishing I was able to able to respond, um, because you know, it, you know, I appreciate uh, uh, Dick's uh, approach. In, in as I've been saying before, you know, w- what we're doing is simulation, and that's 
it's a question of you know collecting a bunch of shortcuts uh, you know even the description of of um, how planets uh, travel in their orbits is is a shortcut you know we have a a very uh, concise description of uh, mechanics of of you know uh, bodies in space traveling around each other but in in reality we have to admit that these forces are probably uh, taking place at the subatomic level so you know this uh, this description of how the how the earth is traveling around the sun is is a shortcut and you know um dick's idea is that you know once you've recognized that you've passed a particular uh threshold then you can sort of switch gears into a new representation which is uh, another level of shortcut uh, you know that that describes things in a different way suddenly you don't have to worry about atoms instead you worry about membranes or something like this you know taking these steps to me that was um if you take that process as uh as as your way of operating i think you 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 will constantly have to defend yourself against um accusations of intelligent design because you're just you know you're saying at a certain point okay this is now obviously the case so we move on to the next level of physics and we have something like this again and then we move on to the next level of physics it seems really you know contrived in a way uh, to to make those steps and what will be what what's you know, the thing we have to watch for is is when we actually detect a change happening at the level that we're talking about rather than worrying about or talking about going to the next level i would like to see an actual and, and you know discuss and prove the that, that an actual change took place in the physics level that you're talking about you know that's and then each one again. I, I don't see the the switch from one level to another, you know, from one physics to a new physics to be something that uh, that really proves much. In a way, you're just saying, okay, I've given up on that level. Uh, I can't simulate this all, so I'm going to have to take uh, the following bunch of shortcuts and pretend I'm at another level, and then we can observe something happening again. Each one of those instances are interesting, but the progression from one to the other. It will require the the, the utmost of uh, you know explanation and defense because I think that's that's when you're really treading on thin ice. Exactly, and I mean, how does novelty traverse in these kind of in methods as well? I mean, certainly, and similarly, I was on the call and unfortunately it ended prematurely, and I shot Dick a few emails following saying exactly what you were saying, but also I had a concern that it should be possible in you know, Dick's levels of detail to jump multiple levels of detail if something evolves so rapidly that it, you know, it solves two conditions to move up two jumps. And the idea of how you actually kind of continue to map novelty. And I also have this concern with regards to using just real-world simulation. I mean, taking existing particle physics simulator and then saying that this will be sufficient to create, you know, multicellular creatures from it through some kind of evolution of levels of detail. I mean, yes, I think what's interesting to me, and this is something that I've tried to prompt Bruce about, is that the folks that have actually developed artificial life simulations can immediately attest to the fact that this is an interesting idea, but something that fundamentally won't work. And I think Adam Aramenko, yourself, myself, I mean, you know, we're a team of three at least currently. Hopefully we can prove Bruce in the right direction. But I think the idea of specifying these things in advance is something that concerns me as well, which is basically what you're saying. But, I mean, if you have five levels of detail that are specified and you start the Evo grid 
at the most basic level of detail, you really are presupposing what these what these changes are going to be in the future, which just uh, you know, as, as a simulator, irks me as well. So, Gerald, I will um, I will make sure both Bruce and Dick listen to this section of the podcast and respond accordingly because I think this is going to be a, a continued topic of discussion. But returning to the ideas of of surviving chaos, I mean, do you think this is an adequate description of artificial life, or do you think it's one of the many descriptions of of artificial life um, that you know we can use within our own simulations or possibly map back into biology somehow? Well, the, the only way to survive chaos is to sort of anticipate possible changes and uh, you know to possible changes in the future, and and that has to be done in in an exploratory way. So, you know, the uh, the, the the way biology does it is is just to produce all sorts of variations in the hope that if the environment changes, well, not in the hope, it's just accidental, of course, but uh, the, the reason it survives is, is because uh, a change in, in um, environmental characteristics happens to be advantageous for one of the uh, mutations that has a little difficulty in the current world, you know, so uh, there, there has to be a certain random exploration of the nearby, uh, you know, uh, physics space, if you will, and, and so when things change, that there are at least a couple of examples who can uh, be successful and start replicating themselves and, and take advantage of it while the others die off. Um, back to this idea of you know the different physics levels, uh, I saw a presentation once, a keynote presentation by a guy from uh, Belgium, uh, a researcher called uh, um, uh, Stales, S-T-E-E-L-S. Uh, Luke Stales, I think it is, and, and he was talking about this idea of recruitment, which was uh, really stuck with me. It was really fascinating. The idea is that um, significant changes in the process of evolution happens when um, already evolved skills are recruited to do something that they weren't evolved to do. And uh, so when these sort of lateral switches happen, in the sense that, you know, you've if by by virtue of evolution and survival, you've developed certain certain abilities or certain you know senses or muscular abilities or whatever else, and then the situation changes and it turns out that it's fairly easy to recruit an existing skill to do something different in a different scenario, which makes for you know a surprising uh, ability to survive because the skill is already developed for a previous purpose. So that, that's a fascinating thing, and I think that will appear to be one of the uh, the things that we observe in a single level of physics, at least. You know, when we're thinking of uh, observing, you know, when something significant has happened, I think this this idea of recruitment is is going to come back. So that's very interesting. I mean, I think certainly what we're discussing with regards to agents, but even down to the um, down to the Evo grid. I mean, this. This really also ties in very neatly with regards to the idea of surviving chaos because what you're doing is creating skills which through, you know, whatever happens in the future, be it chaotic, be it ordered, be it what have you, you have to utilize what has already been created in order to deal with what is what is coming in, uh, up in the future. So, Rudolph, as you, as you listen to this discussion, do you have any, any questions or any thoughts? There's one thing that I would like to mention. It's news that I uh, came up came across recently, and that's a new search engine that's being lost, Wolfram Alpha. There's a very interesting interview with Rudy Rucker about it. Have you heard of it? Uh, 
Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about it. Well, it's going to be a search engine which um, creates a page based on your search query, and it creates a custom-designed web page with the answer to your query. And it's trying to to have some intelligence to the answers as well. Um, it's created by Stephen Wolfram, and well, he's a genius programmer and writer, and he's got this interview with uh, Rudy Rucker, and it's really interesting. I really encourage you and all the listeners to uh, to look it up and to uh, listen to that podcast. It's available online for a free download. And yeah, basically, I'm very excited about it because uh, this is a search engine that is going to be able to answer your specific questions. So one of the examples that it mentioned is that if you uh, query it with the length of the Golden Gate Bridge and the height of the um, Mount Everest, then it will create an answer for you displaying how often the Golden Gate Bridge would fit into the Mount Everest, for instance. And yeah, I'm really curious to see how far this would go, because if you can create an answer like that, uh, the next step might be creating an answer to a question like, what would the 69th Symphony of Beethoven have sounded like if Beethoven was still alive? So I hope this the software is going to create like a database of knowledge and would be a next step towards creating intelligence in computers. And I mean, certainly we had itself on uh, the, the podcast last year, and my understanding is yeah. this is what they're trying to do at Lilly internally. I know through my own uh, work, uh, a few other companies that are trying to do similar things with regards to an intranet within their own company searches. I mean, obviously, there are large companies that have substantial um, you know, data mining opportunities within their own private networks as well, and I think this has been the the holy grail both within the kind of uh, you know public search domain and also the um, corporate kind of private search domain and particularly with regards to pharmaceutical companies uh, because of all the all the possible um, connections with regards to the information that they contain internally so yes i think this is an emerging field and in terms of um, in terms of artificial life's contribution to the specifically what's your thinking rudolf well I'm afraid it's more AI than artificial life, but uh, yeah, it all depends on how you would define life and artificial life. And to me, as a biologist, it doesn't really matter much uh, as long as it produces the results, you know. I mean, in certain definitions, uh, all of our culture and cars could be named alive, and I frankly agree with that because uh, you can see evolution in makes and models of cars as well as in classical life than that you see in trees and, and things like that. I mean, it's fair to say that cars evolve a lot quicker than trees do at the moment. And, well, there, there are certainly an extrapolation of our human life and culture, so why not call them artificial life and why not call a search engine like this uh, the next expression of our life and culture. 
And well, it's in the, itself it makes a strong claim that the algorithms that they use uh, for these kind of uh, intelligence searches are very well uh, based in, in artificial life. Um, and I think what you find um, with regards to these kind of technologies is whilst they may not be explicitly shown as artificial life, the, the underlying algorithms tend to either explicitly be artificial life related or at least have artificial life related roots. Gerald, do you know anything about the search engine? Do you have anything to add? No, I'd like, I'm going to definitely take a look at that. I'm a big fan of Stephen Wolf from ever since I was uh, on vacation once and submerged myself in a new kind of science, which was a very thick book to have on your uh, on your deck chair. You know, it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a serious, you know, several inches thick uh, volume. But it was uh, it was just just wonderful. So he's he's done uh, done amazing stuff. So it's got to be it's got to be interesting. By the way, I was thinking in terms of you know evolving culture and uh, and making the analogy to artificial life. I would say that uh, maybe the the current economic crisis was an extinction event for the SUV. Possibly, or an extinction event for a wide variety of things. I mean, certainly talking to uh, to Greg Boyd last night, he's a New Yorker. There seemed to be. Uh, a wide variety of extinction events associated with creatures that used to uh, exist in New York City. Um, but yeah, imagine, imagine, imagine the scurrying, the creatures scurrying out of New York City these days. Uh, yeah, well, that's exactly what he's saying. So yes, maybe maybe we've got a maybe we've got a lot more to give with artificial life developers to uh, to social theory. So I'd, I'd like to thank you both for the opportunity to to chat this evening. I mean. Certainly, we've touched on a few of the issues um, that the, the reader uh, corresponded with me about, and I think this may be a, an ongoing topic of discussion. And I mean, Gerald, in particular, it's wonderful to have you on and have the chance to chat more about the developments of, of Darwin at home. And I mean, please come back on on a regular basis, as you have done, and uh, and fill us in with the developments. And I mean, Rudolph, it's wonderful that you're going to be recording uh, podcasts in the near future. And I mean, certainly, this is stuff that. Gerald and I have been doing for a while, and I think both Gerald and I have had, uh, you know, real fun with regards to recording podcasts as a means of uh, bringing new people into the discussion and also kind of giving a pulse with regards to our existing projects. Do you get a sense, Rudolph, in terms of your time frame for for recording the podcast? Yes, uh, I've talked to uh, my first guest speaker, and he will be available next week. So, yeah, I think uh, before the end of the month, I should have a first episode up. Terrific. By the way, uh, by the way uh, Rudolph and I are both attending uh, Dick Gordon's Second Life course, uh, Embryo Physics, which is also, I've been there a number of times already. That's fascinating as well. I, I once had a, a nice two-hour discussion with, uh, with Dick after, after the first course I attended, and uh, we had a, a really... Uh, fascinating exploration. He was he was showing me the 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 idea of well, all the different parts of the cytoskeleton of the cell and and how tensegrity might be involved. So uh, this is this is becoming a little interesting. I'm going every week on Thursday night. I go to uh, to this place in Second Life, and Rudolph is often there as well. So and different presenters. And I'm going to be presenting actually as well sometime soon. I'm going to be showing them. Uh, a bunch of simulated tensegrities. While I'm developing Darwin at home, I'm also on the side. I'm I'm trying to generate some movies about uh, tensegrity so that I can give a, an interesting discussion of, of what what it what it feels like and what it means to this uh, embryo physics course. It should be interesting. And Dick wants you as a PhD student, doesn't he, Gerald? 
Oh, I haven't heard anything like that. <laughs> oh, I, I thought you were CC to the wide chain of texts that you should be reading and things of that nature leading towards a PhD. You know, I can't, uh, <laughs> well, whatever, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, as, as I said, it's been wonderful chatting with you both this evening, and my hope is that in two weeks' time uh, there will be another bio to live, there are a few things that may occur, and also um, we may start playing with times too. I mean, I think this time, if we did it slightly later, it might be a little easier for uh, for Gerald and Rudolph, but also I think there are other times that folks have talked about um, with regards to holding bio to live, so I'm open to... Uh, time submission discussion tom at noble8.com it's been a pleasure talking with you both this evening and also obviously talking with Bruce initially in two weeks time topic yet to be decided but if you'd like to submit a topic again tom at noble8.com thank you both thanks to the folks for listening in